0: And welcome to InsurTech Insider, episode A One, One I'm Nigel Walsh. In today's episode, we're going to talk about education and insurance, something that's been on my mind and is close to my heart for a very, very long time. Education has been the focus of many financial campaigns and initiatives over the last few years. But what about insurance? Is insurance getting the attention it duly needs and deserves? Filled with jargon and complex policies, our sector is notoriously hard to figure out. Join us while we take a deep dive into some of the challenges in education, what we can do to invest more back into our customers and how we might tackle the future. As always, I'm not alone, but joined by a panel of amazing guests. First up, I'm joined by my co-host, Benjamin Enzer, director of research at 11FS. How are you doing today, Benjamin?
1: I'm doing really, really well, Nigel. We've got a ton of super exciting projects going on, so very well. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. Well, nice to have you back. I've been listening to you on uh, Fintech Insider on and off over the last uh, couple of weeks as well. So nice to hear you on InsurTech Insider. We're also joined today by Victoria Roberts, Director of Victor's Communications, providing strategic public policy insights and advice across fintech and insurtech. How are you doing today, Victoria?
2: I'm good, thank you. Enjoying the uh, inevitable British summertime of not quite knowing whether it's flip-flops or an umbrella every time you leave the house.
0: Well, I have to say, I left the house this morning with an umbrella and a jacket and came home without either. So uh, they were on me still, just not on me, if that makes sense. So it went from, from rain to sunshine. Uh, and for the benefits of our listeners, would you mind giving them a little bit more about you and what Victor's communications does, please?
2: Absolutely. So uh, ultimately, I'm a policy geek who's always following the latest fintech regs and political shenanigans. Uh, and my insurtech creds come from many years spent at a FTSE 100 insurer, a high growth UK insurtech and most recently managing Tech Nation's insurtech board.
0: Fantastic. Well, With that, let's get on with the show. What's the current state of education in insurance? And this is one that's close to my heart. No matter where I go, whether I speak to my peers in the industry, my peers and friends outside of the industry, or even my kids, the words insurance almost seem to drive fear and doubt and God knows what into people when you start talking about it. So let me start with asking, are younger generations learning more or less about insurance? Benjamin, we're, let me start with you. What's your take on uh, on this? Or where where are, where are younger generations going to learn about this sort of stuff?
1: TikTok, Instagram, um, probably not in schools. I mean, obviously, there are some educational systems that do have some basic financial education for, for pupils, but many countries don't. So a lot of people don't know anything about it until, you know, they get to 16, 18, 17, start learning to drive and suddenly have to get insurance. Or maybe they start traveling and realize, you know, because their parents say, hang on, are you going to get some insurance? Um, But there's not a lot out there. Um, So I think a lot of people end up having to teach themselves or not teach themselves. Interesting.
0: Victoria?
2: Yeah, so I think in senior schools there's some um, financial literacy education, which um, predominantly sort of seems to focus on budgeting and financing and understanding, you know, if you might get a mortgage at some point. And insurance always seems to be a bit of a, of an add-on, but um, there really doesn't seem to be much at the moment that's uh, particularly on insurance in in primary schools at all. And I know there's been a campaign recently to say that more children across the UK should be taught any financial education at primary school, not just um, about insurance, but that's just certainly be a component of it. So uh, hopefully we'll see some progress on that in the coming years. The,
0: the thing that I get stuck on on this is whose responsibility is it? And I've always moaned. I can't say it any other way. I've always moaned and whined that my kids will go to school and they'll learn cos and sin and tan and wonderful equations and lots of other stuff, but they don't come out with the life skills. to almost that you've described, Victoria, where they they can't change a tyre in a car or or a, a bike. Um, they wouldn't know how to change a plug potentially maybe they do that these days Um, but they certainly don't understand um, bank accounts budgeting savings and importantly with regards to this conversation insurance who's where does that obligation or where does that sit where where does that responsibility sit should it be the educators should it be in school or should it be parents, friends, or other mechanisms. I mean, as Benjamin mentioned, TikTok. What, what's your take on that? Is it, is it the school's job to help people on this?
2: I think that many people will get information from their parents and friends, but like so many um, areas, I suppose, of, uh, of growing into adulthood, if you want something to be comprehensive and universal, then a school is a good channel for, for capturing all children. So... There's a question as to whether that should be part of the curriculum or whether the um, the school can be a, a vehicle, I suppose, for delivering those messages. And that's certainly, I think, what we're seeing at the moment in the absence of um, more financial education being on the primary curriculum. We're seeing various sort of campaigns and initiatives that are coming together to help those um, sort of forward thinking, um, progressive primary schools who have the capacity to incorporate more things into their um, daily uh, daily teaching. We're finding that there's some great tools that are now available for them to do so.
1: I completely agree. I think it's I think it's on parents to teach, you know, their their children responsibility, to teach them how to sort of cope in adulthood. But because you know, some children fall through the gaps, some people's parents are, you know, let's say useless at teaching them how a car works or or useless at teaching them about insurance. You need the schools to be able to give people some of the basics for people who fall through the gaps, whose parents don't talk to them. And, and you know, actually, there's lots of difficult conversations you have to have as a parent. Do your children even want to listen to you talking to them about insurance? They're not going to care. It's well, quite hard. It's a hard thing to teach, right?
0: And this is, this is actually the word Victoria used that I love was universal. I think that actually if you want something done Comprehensively and consistently, so everyone's got a strong baseline to start with, in the same way that we do reading, writing, maths, and all the other things that that, that we many of us take for granted. We haven't even solved all that to, to, in, in many cases, but we have, I think, in the UK, for, for, for at least for, for a good perspective. But if it has to be universal, I I feel strongly that actually schools probably one of the best places to do that. And it was only through a. I think it was a crowdfunded campaign between uh, Martin Lewis and, uh, of Money Saving Experts um, fame and a bunch of others that came together. Uh, the Money in the Pension Service created a, uh, a textbook back in October 2021 that allowed uh, Your, Money Ma- Your Money Matters book get um, distributed to all school kids going forward. And I think initiatives like that were kind of add-on to the already... Huge burden that that our teachers have. Anyone that went through homeschooling over the last twenty four months will just know how difficult the job is in the first place in providing that consistent education. I guess if I if I take that angle to it, uh, Benjamin, is there any downsides to us teaching in the school if, if we started there?
1: I don't see. I don't see what the downside is, except that you know some children switch off, some children don't pay attention, but then that's going to happen however you try and teach it to them. I mean, I think to the point you were making, you know, teaching people about basic financial literacy is its a really important step in progressing into adulthood. And people can get themselves into quite difficult situations or, you know, you know, really bad things can happen to people if they don't get this education, if they don't understand risk. You know, obviously people who, who drive without motor insurance, but, you know, people who don't get home insurance. And it's often, sadly, it's the most vulnerable people are often the ones who are most likely perhaps not to get the insurance because they can't afford it or they think they can't afford it. And then suddenly their situation is so much worse. So there is a real sort of element of social justice to this, of of making sure that people are well prepared. I don't see a downside other than for the teachers, how do you get a bunch of 15-year-olds or 13-year-olds or 11-year-olds to take this seriously and to want to listen? So I think it's hard to do, but I'm not sure there's a downside.
0: And, and then last point before I move on, I was going to ask you, is there anything written in policy that you're aware of that would indicate where the responsibility for this actually sits.
2: So my understanding is that a couple of years ago, there was actually a move um, to introduce financial education into the national curriculum, which wasn't actually um, then taken forward. And there's definitely a sort of a, a push now from people who are advocating for that to, uh, for that to, um, to, to go ahead in the future. So um, uh, there's slightly different obligations in senior schools now in England, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. But uh, at the moment in primary school, it's uh, discretionary, as we've said, at the sort of capacity of the teachers.
0: So if I, if I move on, I, I I think this might be, maybe they're just picking on insurance. If I give you an example, my BNK, and so my bank, targets school kids with a financial education campaign um, that is a £3 million campaign to help children better understand finance, and has a plan to educate quarter of a million school-aged children by 2026, according to the charity. The campaign will deliver hybrid financial education to children and young people between the ages of five and 25, both in school and at home through a mix of in-person and virtual sessions. Speaking about the campaign, the CEO, Guy uh, Ridgen, t- said, financial freedom is knowing what to ask and who to trust to build the capability and confidence to make the right money choices for our well-being. We believe when it comes to making money choices, this should be a right, not a privilege. I think actually between the three of us, we've touched on many of these things already. I guess my first question, uh, Benjamin, is you. I mean, why why is it not this for an insurance company? Why is maybe it's about your point about you know we don't we don't even think about this till we get a car or otherwise or our first uh, vacation with friends? But why are insurers not leading on this? It's always back to my question to Victoria around whose responsibility is it? But what's your, what's your take on this?
1: I mean, I think we do see insurers or some insurers putting some work into it, some attention. I think if you look at someone like Australia, you've got you know, some of the insurers have come together trying to create some campaigns, but it costs a lot of money. You know, so reaching 250,000 children is great, but if you think about how many school children there are in just in the United Kingdom, right, just one country, uh, you've got, off the top of my head, sort of 10, 12 million, right? So 250,000 is great, but it's only a start, and then to your point, Nigel, yeah, that's education about finance, but it need that needs to encompass insurance as well. Because, you know, if you, if you were working really hard to get yourself into a flat or get yourself a car and you need that car to drive to work and so on, and then suddenly you're not insured and something bad happens, suddenly your whole livelihood is threatened, all those things you worked for. So I think insurance should be inherent in any financial education campaign because all of those things you're working for are at risk if you don't protect them.
2: I just think it was interesting because there are some new initiatives and organisations people like the Centre for Financial Capability that was founded last year and actually when you look at the funding um, behind that a lot of that's um, ABI, Aviva, AXA, M&G so um, it's certainly not that the sector um, or the, the more traditional participants in the sector aren't active in this space but um, I wonder whether it's a question as they sort of see it as foundational like you need to learn the basics before you can go on to sort of understand insurance or you need to have a certain level of um uh, i suppose sort of savings and outgoings before you then start to need to protect um that that lifestyle that you've um uh, accumulated so possibly sort of see it as sort of levels and insurance as sort of a subsector of that
0: i'm actually really i'm actually with you there and i speak from having a a nine-year-old daughter and a 13 year old son as they've grown up you've seen them look at how they earn money whether they do chores around the house and what they can save and what they can go to the supermarket and buy a magazine with or a bar of chocolate or in my day it was penny sweets now they're never a penny um but but it's almost how much can i get and how much can i spend then into the education of well, how do i save and what am i saving for and at five i mean honestly we're just saving for the next edition of um the magazine or the penny suite whatever else it is and there's no need for insurance at that age obviously other than that's provided by your parents provided provided they can do so um the, the point they make here though about the channels in which you get it and it being a right not a privilege goes back to actually if we do it at university at school we create the foundation so everyone's at least starts off on 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 the same foot um the one you talked about uh, channels uh benjamin TikTok, and I've read so many stories about people taking advice from Instagram, TikTok, other social channels, and getting themselves into a lot of trouble. So the whole way in which these channels can be regulated or where you put your trust is quite a concern. How how do we think we go about putting the right places in that? Does that mean... Victoria, maybe one for you, does that mean insurers should have a presence on TikTok and have people out there saying, hey, I'm a trusted brand, I've been around for 300 years, here's what you need to know about insurance? How how do you make it educational and fun for the right audience in that space?
2: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Somebody mentioned, um, Finn talked to me, uh, oh, I don't know, about six months ago, and I just went down this complete sort of um, rabbit warren of going, oh my goodness, there's so many um, so many perspectives and different approaches that you can present this information um, through. So um, uh, I don't know, maybe we'll start to sort of, in the same way that some of the, the larger companies now have their, um, their sort of Twitter channels and Facebook pages, maybe they'll be having their TikTok videos. But um, I think... In some ways, you might find that um, that would be progress if it felt that more professional um, advice was coming through to, say, Gen Z, because a lot of the videos that are on there, there's, um, you know, they've got these sort of huge um, asterisks written all over with hearts and bubbles saying, by the way, this isn't financial advice, but, but fundamentally it is, right? So, um, yeah, I think it's uh, wondering how you capture those channels, I'm sure will be something that uh, somebody should or probably is already thinking about.
0: And if I look at the time spent that the children spend or all of us spend on these social channels, it's kind of the default platform to go to. So you've got to create that trusted individual or brand that you can get information from. I think we've probably seen it in the crypto stroke NFT space where people took advice or insights. My 12 year old, now 13, he said to me, how do I mine NFTs or create an NFT? And he ended up looking on YouTube to go work out how to do it. I didn't have a clue how to do it, so he he went went off and learned uh, learned how to do it. Now, who's to say the one he he did was the right way to do it or not.
1: I was just gonna say, you you have to go where the customers are, right? It's a fundamental of sort of marketing. And so if we're talking about younger people, you know, they are spending their time, as, as you said, on on Snapchat, on, on TikTok, on Instagram, and so on. There is some fantastic content there, very little about to insurance, obviously. Um, but if insurance companies are serious about engaging younger people and educating them about insurance, then yes, they need to start creating professional content about insurance. And sure, not everyone is going to want to watch it, but there's this strategy of borrowed relevance where you talk about the things that people do care about, you know, cars, houses, all sorts of things like health, and then you introduce insurance into that. So, And I think, I think if the insurance industry and individual insurance companies aren't present, they do create this void that gets filled by lots of fantastically well-meaning people and some bad actors. Um, you know, I'm not sure there's that many insurance-selling scams, but you know there are bad actors out there who will exploit a gap. So I think if there isn't professional content, that creates more of a risk that other people come in with inappropriate, bad advice and so on.
2: I was entertained by um, sorry your, your comment on bad actors. I wondered if that was a, a comment on the, uh, the presentation of the TikTok <laughs> videos.
0: That,
1: that or It's funny yeah. you say it,
0: because actually there are a number of really good TikToks channels, YouTube channels and others that do give out really sensible, grounded advice, back to your point, Benjamin, around of the channel of choice where people go to. So provided you can sift through the noise, you can get to the stuff really, really quickly. I think the same is true for medical insights. I mean, I don't know how many people now turn up to a doctor or GP uh, uh, surgery or online appointment without having researched 17,000 different ways that might be wrong with them, on Google or elsewhere to say, hey, I think I've got these things. So we've all turned into um, at-home doctors because we've researched that my left finger's gone blue and it's thro- throbbing and swollen, and actually you've just got a, a cut or, a, or whatever else it might be. But you've, you obviously, or in many cases, fear the worst. So it, it is about finding um, the right level of information and insights that you can trust. The debate I always have is, is it school? Is it policy? Is it insurer? Let me be controversial for a second. If I took the money that's been spent on price comparison websites in the UK right now and switched that to education because they're now being equalized and normalized, would we be better off longer term? Point A or point B, is insurance just so boring that no one really cares at this stage? And for those who can't see, both my guests are laughing away or smiling away here.
1: I'm gonna. I'm gonna say, you know, if you the, the comparison engines, the comparison websites, they actually do provide a fair amount of education. You know, there is some good content on those sites educating people ins- about insurance. But I think to the point we're talking about, if we're thinking about younger people, I'm not sure younger consumers, particularly the youngest consumers, are actually spending time on comparison engines because then that's not the media that they use. Um, but yeah, I think I think you could certainly divert some funding so i, I think you know to, to the insurance marketers listening to this i'd be thinking well are there some existing people on TikTok or instagram that i could sponsor people who are sort of associated with the topics that we're interested in associated with cars associated with things that young people will be thinking about or travel is there are there some responsible voices that we could potentially sponsor without you know without changing their content but giving them a bit of funding helping them make a living out of it I'm not quite sure where you're where you're going with the sort of the, the price comparison things. I mean, it's true, obviously British British companies in particular are spending a lot of money there, but that's their marketing budgets. You are saying they should spend their marketing budgets differently? Yeah, that,
0: that's almost my that's almost my point. Do we capture people at a different stage if we if we're spending let's let call it fifty pounds per policy on price comparison? Is that money better spent rather than attracting customers? Is it is it better educating customers? Which goes back to the whose responsibility is it to do the education piece? And actually the thing I was looking for was this, and by the way, this is world over. I've seen this in the States as well. There's a lady on TikTok called Crystal Todd. She's a certified public accountant. uh, And she does, you know, she quoted something along the lines of, I dissected frogs in my science class. I will never do that again in my life. However, I wasn't taught how to balance a checkbook. (laughs) It's the same issue, right? So it's the same issue consistent world over in two highly developed um, nations Um, I guess the the last point, if I move on 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 this one, um, a report from the Centre for Social Justice showed that almost half of individuals, uh, 46%, who have suffered from financial problems said that low money management skills played a part. The same report showed that 44% of all adults and two-thirds of those aged 18 to 34 believe the situation would improve with more financial education. Do we suspect the same in insurance would be true here, Victoria?
2: I I think it would be right to um, to think so and possibly even higher. I think um, people tend to maybe still be a bit more familiar with the sort of basics of of banking. Um, I think it was Capco that did a report last year that said about four out of ten consumers didn't feel well informed about insurance or available products and that actually went up to just over 70% for the uninsured. So um, there's definitely um, a, a gap there between how confident you would feel in taking out or making use of insurance to balance the risks in your life um, versus how much you understand what you would be purchasing. Yeah,
0: I agree with you totally there.
2: I guess last
0: question, uh, Benjamin, maybe for you is, when should we start teaching people about insurance? We talked about this briefly a minute ago. Or where should we start teaching? And let me give you an example. I've had this debate online with a couple of folks over the years my bet, uh, just looking at where my kids spend their time, my bet, and if I was a, a marketing person, I would be insuring Minecraft. So my sp- son spends way too much time in Minecraft and his little sister walks in, joins the game, blows loads of stuff up and it all goes away. And He cries because he's got a build it again from scratch. If I was Aviva, Hiscox and lots of other insurance companies out there, Why would I not let my son buy for however whatever magical currency happens inside Minecraft for X amount of money that there's a a sibling insurance for X amount of money that says if they walk in and blow it all up, we will bring it back to where it was before. Is that not a good opportunity to build into where kids are if they're playing in video games and starting to show what insurance might do in the future?
1: I love that because it's not only about being where they are, but it's also about using the media that people use. And young people love games. I mean, lots of people love games, um, but young people particularly love games. So if you can introduce insurance into a game context, people understand, will start understanding what it is. So I love that idea. I think the, the insurance market is listening to this, should be very grateful to you for a very good idea. But I think, but I think that's exactly the sort of thinking that people need is, is how do I bring insurance into other contexts, particularly gaming type contexts, because that's how people learn.
0: Victoria, where would you start and how
2: Crikey. Well, I think we've talked quite a bit about how people tend to only sort of I suppose engage with insurance when they really need when they need it. So you see them go through that car insurance, travel insurance, and then maybe onto sort of contents when they start to move away from um, from home. So uh, I'm not sure I'm going to beat that uh, metaverse um, uh, analogy. Although that was, that could also give your uh, give your son a, a a weekend job rebuilding everybody else's uh, things. Like I suppose they do that through AI these days. But I, um, I like
0: your thinking. You've just made him a load a whole pocket money here. This is fantastic. <laughs> Although I'm trying to give a screen time. i will give him more screen time. No, I think we all agree, hugely important issue, not sure where the buck stops, no pun intended. Um, But I also see things like embedded insurance and so much more that has been talked about over the last 12, 24, 36 months, being one way to address this by making it invisible or embedded into the thing that we buy, the journey, the property, the rental. But it doesn't preclude the need for um, education, understanding what I've got, I'm not that I'm over or underinsured. And then in the event of something happening, what are my obligations, rights and needs? I think that's a really great segue to, uh, A, take a quick break, and B, come back afterwards, Benjamin, to you and talk about education for adults in insurance. So with that, let's take a quick break.
1: Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers.
0: Right, let's get back to it. Ben, over to you.
1: So let's move on from education in a school setting to thinking about sort of continuous learning for adults. So I think one of the big questions is, you know, if you put a cynical hat on, why should insurance companies even care? I mean, what does the insurance industry have to gain from more education, Nigel? I mean, like, why should they bother? Well, I think
0: there's a couple of fronts on this. And I think the insurance industry has done a good job of either amending the products to mitigate the the education issue or try to make things easy to understand. We've seen things over the years come out, whether it's key facts, pages, and all that sort of good stuff, followed by, of course, 300 pages of policy document. I'm being a little bit jokey on the last one. Um, But the key facts really and truly do start to help people understand what they are covered for and not covered for. But then, of course, you get into the fine print where people then feel like uh, the perception is insurers are there not to pay. Now, the reality is um, if you look at all of the communications from the big carriers that are out there something like 96 to 99 percent of all valid claims are paid on time and i think that they make a really really good job of this if you look at the billions that are paid out we can see the industry is actually working i don't think people know if you look at the number of people that actually there have insurance and then go on to make a claim if i said to you today Who do you call to make a claim? What's the process? Most of us wouldn't know because most of us haven't been through it. Whereas most of us log on to our bank account via an app or website on a daily, weekly or frequent basis. But we have no need, we've no real need to talk to our insurer. So I think that constant education is a way of not just increasing engagement, but reminding them, hey, these are the things that you have to do in the event of. We see it often around storm event or hail or, uh, in the U.S., where it comes up to Thanksgiving, you're cooking turkeys. People, will off, insurers will often send out videos to go. Here's here's an educational video on how to cook your turkey. Not because we want you to help you cook, but because we want you to help you not burn your house down. <laughs> I didn't know that. So education comes in many different forms. It might be a pre- it might be a preventive thing to say, uh, Benjamin, move your car if you can, because it's about to be a hailstorm.
1: I love that sort of stuff where you're doing, you know, insurance companies start using data or information they have to help protect customers from risk. I mean, that's a slightly different topic to to education, but I I, I love that. Uh, Victoria, do you think, how how big a problem is is this lack of education among adults? And because we were talking about children earlier, is it a big problem among adults? I mean, do we think there are lots of adults who don't understand and are making big mistakes because of it
2: well anecdotally um definitely uh, as soon as you mentioned that you've worked in insurance at a 40 something dinner party everybody's got a quick question right and uh, these are people who are experts in their own fields but you know someone has got a dodgy knee should they take out health insurance no you've missed the boat on that one if it's already <laughs> broken you know um yeah what should they do with their pension, uh, pension transfers and all that kind of thing. So uh, so, so, yes, I would say, as, as we've said all along, it's something that people just don't really understand unless they've had um, a reason to really uh, um, have to engage with it. And, and so often that's been like a mandatory product, so car insurance or if mm-hmm. they've had to take out life insurance um, attached to a mortgage, um, mortgage policy. So I do think there is so much more that we could do to uh, educate um everybody uh, more about insurance and um I think some of that is just about the social purpose of insurance as well it gets a pretty bad um rep as Nigel has just sort of um said but uh, actually insurers are fundamentally there to kind of pick up the pieces when things haven't gone how you uh, how you might have uh, have intended and um the There's probably a sort of treating customers fairly element to it as well, which is if people are more educated, they're more likely to take out the right policy and the right policy cover, which ultimately means you're getting better customer satisfaction um, for your products and sales too. Do we think
1: people have been put off insurance? Because, Victoria, you were talking just just before we sort of came back on um, about some of the sort of mis-selling scandals that we've had, for example, in the UK of uh, PPI insurance and so on. Actually, I think insurance, anyway, whatever. Um, do you think some of those those mis-selling scandals that we've seen in the UK and in other markets have contributed to distrust, and that that's you know making people avoid insurance?
2: I think it's pretty frustrating that um, that's often what people can think of as sort of comes to mind when people think of insurance. Um, was, was looking at some of the materials from the the MyBank um, team, and like totally fantastic what they're doing Um, going into schools and they've got some um, they've actually got sort of a subsection on insurance where they go through and and run through the basics but then they get into some case studies and it's exactly um, it's exactly that they've got a case study on insurance around PPI mis-selling life insurance fraud and somebody who went to prison because they said the camera got nicked on holiday when uh, when they were lying And, and actually it feels like these if we've got that opportunity to have some case studies the case study should be you know this sort of 40 year old dad died but life insurance Meant that the family could stay in their home, or um, you know, this. Somebody um, was crashed into by a driver by no fault of their own, but actually it meant that any of their um, repairs to the car and maybe any associated medical costs were paid. And that feels like what we should really be championing.
0: You, or your pet was ill. You took it to the vet and the cost of the repair, repair, because they were a pet, to repair, repair, <laughs> you know, the cost of helping your pet get better, God, Stephen and Charlotte would kill me, um, was covered by the insurance company. It's a really, really big bill, but don't worry, you had insurance. We looked after you. So it's there for making sure you get back to, you know, in the insurance world, pre-loss condition. But actually, how does, you know, Oscar or Fido or Fluffy the Cat get back to um, making sure it's in full and, and, and good health?
1: So there's an element here of insurance companies really need to talk, talking more about the positive stories to, so that people understand all the benefits that come from insurance. And to your point earlier, Nigel, you know, 96, 98% of claims are paid out in, in you know, most lines of insurance. So it's, there's an element here of just needing more more, goods, more positive stories.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I, I'll give you two more examples that, that drive me mad. I've probably mentioned them on every show, so I apologise. But the you know, example one, what type of lock do you have in your house? What a silly question. (laughs) I wasn't here when it was put in the first place. Um, I walk up to the lock and it's so old, you you can't see anything on on it anyway. And you then go into the list and you say, well, I've actually got three locks on my front door. You're allowed to choose one. So it it feels like you're being tripped up from the outset or can't get it right. Uh, and then Aviva, to their credit, came out with a campaign a, year, a few years back. And there's a really good video online that says, get a quote, not a quiz. And they actually use this exact example for the video to go, what lock have you got? And it was, just, I just, it was, it was really smartly done. And in the same ilk, none of us on this on this uh, podcast now are builders. What's the average rebuild cost of your house? I don't know. I'm not a builder. And it's like, well, how am I supposed to know this sort of stuff? So again, then you, know, you trot off to the... Uh, the builders or the Home Buyers Association, you put in your postcode and the size of your property and, and all that sort of stuff, you get an average cost of rebuilding your property. We should be leveraging data where we possibly can as much as possible to remove these questions. We do so in as many environments as possible. Why not to help educate people along the way? Hey, Nigel, people of your age and your profile and your risk level do these three things. If you're low risk, choose this. If you're medium risk, choose this. If you're high risk, choose that.
1: And make it much more simple. My house is of non-standard construction because the, the, the ground floor is brick and the, uh, the rest of it is a timber frame and so on. So getting home insurance is always fun because a whole bunch of underwriters aren't even interested because it's too much work because it's not standard construction. And how do we work out what it's worth? And how do we work out the rebuilding I've touched the nerve
0: here, can you, Victoria? <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna
2: say, don't, don't cook that turkey. You don't know what might
0: happen. <laughs> you haven't got a thatch roof as well just to, just to add, you know, salt to the wound, have you?
1: I haven't, no, fortunately. There's <laughs> <laughs> probably a load of listeners outside the UK think, what on earth is a thatched roof? Um, <laughs> it's made of straw, um, so flammable. Um, what about the jargon? I mean, is the, is the jargon a barrier? Has has the industry become its own sort of worst enemy to some extent with, you know, as you said, this sort of joking 300-page policy document and all the jargon and all the exclusions? Is that is that a barrier as well? Or do brokers help people cut through some of that? I always think actually, you know, the brokers play a big role in education.
2: I've, I've probably got quite a recent um example of this um, where I was sort of looking for some new professional indemnity insurance and uh, there was an insurtech that had a, a seamless quote um was all very clear they didn't they, they didn't ask me that many questions where they did it was all sort of categorized exactly as you said Nigel so it was all click 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 my goodness this is very straightforward thank you you know I'm gonna probably take this no matter what just because it made my life very easy at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night um so you sort of press buy and then immediately you're hit by um, the underwriting insurer's um, key documents, um, policy cover schedule. Um, to the extent that, being the kind of insurance geek I am, I actually, obviously, opened those and started to read them, I was like, "Blimey, I, I, I can't even tell if I'd been covered for the things I thought I'd been covered um, for." So, um, so yes, it definitely needs to change, and it needs to be simpler.
1: That's a really interesting example. Then, so, 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 essentially, the sort of marketing team or the product team have done the hard work of getting it really simple, making it really clear. And then the underwriters haven't really played ball with that, and haven't really simplified their documentation. So it starts as a good experience, and then and then they lost it. I'm interested to bring in, in Lemonade because you know a lot of people have looked at Lemonade, and Lemonade's tried really hard to sort of simplify things. And you know they're, they're quite you know they're a popular example that we often use at to share with people. Um, are they going down the right path by you know really trying to simplify it and make things clearer for customers?
0: I think um, I, I'm a huge fan of Daniel and the team and, and what they've built in Lemonade from a brand perspective and product perspective. What they tried to do back in 2018 with Policy $2.00, so it's going back quite a few years, is exactly that, was make it simpler. I think what we what we mustn't forget, so, that, so one, they made the rate quote bind process simple. Two, they've made the claim process simple by using chatbots and whatever else. And that's good for a large percentage of the straight through non-complex claims Mm. on the consumer side. If you look into the small to middle market SMB, SME type space, and you look to the recent challenge over the last 24 months or so with COVID, much of that came to do with language and wording of policies. And we mustn't forget that the policy document is actually, in essence, just a contract. And that contract is written and clarified with a set of defined terms or otherwise, that most people will never read in the consumer space. In the S B space, maybe. And then in the commercial space, without doubt, they'll they'll be crystal clear on what they're covered for and what they're not covered for. In the insurance world, there is a benefit, in some instance, of having those being vague or ambiguous, I guess. And in the examples that, i uh, give you two examples you've talked about before. One would be non-denial of access to a premises where no physical damage was caused for the pandemic. So how do you cover, how do you get property how do you get a property physical claim when no physical damage was done, yet you can't get into the property, which is one of the cases that went through. And the other was for the terrorist attack for something very similar when in London, uh, I think it was Borough Market was shut down, people couldn't trade. And yet, because again, there was no damage through their terrorism uh, exclusions or otherwise, again, they were unable to make a claim. So we've got to be really clear about the scenarios and what you are, what you're not covered for. And I do think insurers, underwriters, experts in wording, of which there are thousands out there, are continuously t- trying to tighten these up to make them simpler and fair. So, you know, post outbreak of SARS, I can guarantee wording was tightened up. Post COVID, wording was, t- was tightened up across all policies. Um, it, it put that into context for our, us as individuals, If we now go book travel insurance, every one of us will see immediately what the impact of COVID would or could have on our travel insurance policy that we have. So I think, you know, as we are always evolving, these sorts of things will always bring further clarification to policy wording. And like you say, the jargon, what we need to do, I think probably on a more frequent basis, is almost do a de-bloating. Is there a way in which we can reduce the number of things that we have as opposed to just keep adding more and more in there that might be counter to other things that we have. I think some people do a good job of it, others have just got more and more bloated over the years. It could do with a quick optimization, I guess.
1: I feel like we're coming back to the question you were posing at the beginning of the podcast, Nigel, about whose responsibility is it to educate customers? Now, we were thinking at that point about sort of children and, and, and younger customers, but if we think about uh, the, the sort of adult customers, or indeed the small business customers, you know, a bit like you were talking about Victoria. I feel like quite a lot of that starts to fall onto the broker because it's the broker who's the front line who's having to explain to the customer what is and what isn't covered. So, if the responsibility perhaps should belong with government, or perhaps you know could be passed to schools and so on, or perhaps should belong to the insurance companies, and the underwriters, is it not the broker who's actually at the front line of this and having to do a lot of the explaining and sometimes basically not going after certain customers because the effort of explaining the policy is greater than the potential value for the broker. Uh, Is is that a fair analysis that that the burden is hitting the brokers
2: today, do you think? So yes, um, I think brokers have a really um important part in the ecosystem um uh, not everybody is going direct through digital um through digital means to insurance companies and indeed in some circumstances that wouldn't be most appropriate so uh, I think a lot of it comes to sort of where's the who's who's the customer facing point mm. um and in that sense brokers will be in some cases but I think just give more work to the regulators is there more that they could do around sort of Often when you try to challenge why can't these documents be shorter um, or debloated, I'm going to steal that, Nigel, I like that, um, then a lot of them say, we well, you know, because for regulatory purposes, we need to have, you know, Section 53.B. So um, they're, with anything, I think there's sort of sometimes it's, um, is, is it that rules need to change or is it just that guidance can be issued, which can give comfort to some of the um, institutions, legal teams, that actually it would be OK to just put this in slightly simpler terms or slightly more straightforward language because that would actually give you a better customer experience but that nothing would necessarily be lost from um from the contract i'll
0: give you i'll give you two other examples here to build to build on this one is if you look at the cost of directors and officers insurance dno insurance over the last couple of years it's climbed quite significantly um given the burden or responsibility on that broker or agent who's given the advice in many of these situations so if you're going out giving advice um, and you're the, the trusted third party, those folks that are buying insurance and insurance, giving out that advice, that, that cost for them has gone up as well, given things like the pandemic, which I think is really interesting. The other one that always haunts me is transparency. And I can't work out where this one sits. We all, we all I think, will agree, transparency in things like commission or trail commissions uh, and fees is really important. And in the pension era, pre-RDR, pension advice was given to you as part of the overall service that you got. Along comes RDR, uh, Retail Distribution Review, and you get uh, the requirement to split out and be transparent about what you're paying for that advice. What happens then is people go, well, I'm not paying that, that's a load of money. Why am I paying that amount of money for, for advice? <laughs> and they stop yeah. getting advice. Input into pensions drops off, and I'm paraphrasing this massively. So someone in the pension space, I'm sure will correct me. And then as a net result, we end up with workplace pensions because there was a big pensions gap And there's a, you know, there's a a protection gap that increases around uh, later life. So we go through a, hey, let's go fix transparency. We fix transparency. It nudges the problem forward in terms of now we've got transparency, but now we've got people that aren't buying cover because they're not prepared to pay for it. Then we address that with workplace pensions. So Everyone with more than X number of employees has to have a pension. But we, we keep going in circles trying to chase ourselves to work out where we're going to educate, give insight and transparency to the end consumer who are ultimately trying to help both in now and in later life if it's on the pension side.
1: And one of the core problems there, there's a couple of core problems there. So one is that people underestimate the value of financial advice because they don't appreciate how good advice or good decisions can make a huge difference to to, to you financially. And then the other one is that people are get risk wrong, right, all of us tend to overestimate some risks and underrate us other risks. So we protect ourselves against some things that are maybe relatively unlikely to happen to us. um, And we ignore some other risks. And people, you know, routinely get risk wrong. So you have these sort of fundamental challenges of people underestimating the value of financial advice, and not understanding the risks that we're exposed to as individuals. Uh, You know, maybe we're all underestimating flood risk. We're all underestimating probably the risk of climate change, you know, wrecking our livelihoods or wrecking our homes and so on, um, which are horribly knotty. Uh, problems that we're not going to solve in the remaining few minutes on this on this podcast. Okay, how about we wrap up with what would we like to see in um, the next the, the the next couple of years? What do we think the industry needs to do or can do um, in the next couple of years to sort of improve education? Obviously, Nigel, you've already given us insurance and Minecraft, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, what do we want to see? I, I, I maybe maybe Victoria do you want to go first and then
2: yeah I think it's just um, all the back to the actors again it's just all the actors um, coming together to, to keep really focusing on this and to keep um, ensuring it's very complementary in what they're doing so let's make it compulsory in primary schools let's keep building on the fantastic materials that are available to, to them let's have some great reliable TikTok videos that everybody can see they can click on to get some further information no matter what product or proposition they were, um, they were looking to, um, to to take out and find a way to help educate not just those people who are kind of thinking oh I need car insurance today or I need life insurance today but find a way to really help people understand how that might help them in the first place.
1: I'm going to build on the video thing I think video and gaming is, is the way forward if you can build great video content that educates people about insurance that helps them understand risk that also puts insurance into the context of subjects that people care about um, And given, you know, we know that millions of people use YouTube or Instagram or TikTok to just find out about things. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity for the industry if it can use videos and games to educate people about insurance and help them understand risks they're exposed to, help them understand scenarios. So that's what I'd, I'd love to see is more effort on using video and gaming to educate people. I've totally stolen your idea, Nigel. Uh, Nigel. (laughs) I think it's a great idea,
0: actually, Benjamin. You should take that. uh, No, I'm not going to add anything else to what you said. I think Victoria just nailed it. Uh, Be where the customer is. Make it engaging. Make it fun. Start early, but make it meaningful. Uh, And I think there's lots that we could do, um, both at the children's education stroke school, but also to make our products easier, like the folks that Aviva did around, um, get a quote, not a quiz. I mean, let's make it... Let's ask the questions that matter, not the ones that don't.
1: Fantastic. I think that wraps us up.
0: Benjamin, thank you for that. Um, That wraps up today's discussion. Thank you all very much for joining Benjamin and I. Uh, Where can we find out more about you, Victoria?
2: I am on www.victoriouscoms.com or follow me on Twitter at PolicyVix.
1: Fantastic. Benjamin? I'm on LinkedIn or you can find out about us at 11fs.com.
0: Aren't you on TikTok yet, Benjamin?
1: I am not. I my my daughter would be appalled, but I'm not. <laughs> Actually, she wouldn't be appalled. She'd be proud.
2: <laughs> Dancing insurance advice coming to you. Oh, now
0: you've got it.
1: Can you imagine? Maybe
2: maybe
0: maybe that's what we've got to do next. And you can find me as always, giving out about scooters, e-scooters, and much more on Twitter at Nigel Walsh. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and helps others find the show too. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11 colon FS or InsureTech Insider. Find us on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much and goodbye.